All right, well, shall we get started? Let's do it. Let's go. Scary movies. <laughs> Who wants to start? Well, I, I think um, a most of us are thinking about movies that are in the horror category, probably. But I think it's important to note that some of the scariest moments in movies um, are not always in horror movies. Uh, just to pick up, just to mention two that we've talk, been talking about recently, um, when in Vertigo, when Scotty is taking, Judy. pulling Judy up that stairway, that you know, the, the acting is such that you don't really know what's going to happen when they get up there. Um, and and the homage slash ripoff, depending on who you talk to, of that movie uh, in Obsession, in the last scene when um, Cliff, Robertson. Cliff Robertson is approaching Geneviève Bujold, the range of possible outcomes of that meeting is quite wide, quite wide in your mind, and they keep you guessing right up until the last minute. So, but uh, certainly. Uh, I think what we're thinking about with the proximity of Halloween is movies that the entire intent of the movie is to scare you and to, to keep you on the edge of your seat throughout. No, I don't um, know. I don't know. It's just scary movies. Scary moments in movies still count. Well, um, as you all know, I'm an old movie, classic Hollywood buff. So um, I wanted to talk about a few things that maybe the um, person who's not sharing that interest would not know about and maybe should um there's a guy named val luton who well, he's no longer with us unfortunately he died quite young but he created some of the best horror movies any of us have ever seen and his most famous work is the original cat people and s some of you may have um heard of that but this was a very interesting man um i'm not going to go into his, his history very much but the point is that he was hired by RKO Studios at a time when they were almost broke. And he had to produce money-making movies on a shoestring budget. And he was directed to do horror movies because the ones at Universal had been very successful for a while. They were less so now, but RKO saw that there was a, a way for them to get in and tap that market. So he was you know, tasked with doing this, but with very, very small budgets. And he just didn't have the money to show the effects he wanted. So the artistic benefit from this is that he had to suggest the horror rather than showing it explicitly. And in so doing, it made the movies much scarier, I think, than they would have otherwise been. I mean, we're so used nowadays to unlimited budgets with massive special effects, and you can, they can pretty much do anything and show anything. But this was somebody who had to convey horror without showing it explicitly and it's extremely creative stuff that's great um, yeah there's a there's a, a before i get off of, of of him there there's a documentary made a few years ago called val luton the man in the shadows it's narrated by martin scorsese and i really recommend anybody search this out because it's a fascinating hour and a half documentary it goes through the whole process and say say, say what it's called again the documentary Val Luton, The Man in the Shadows, okay. and it's Martin Scorsese. And some of the other movies that I would just very quickly recommend, there's one called I Walked with a Zombie, and it's not what you think, but it's a brilliant movie. And there was Cat People, there was a sequel, Curse of the Cat People, 
the leopard man isle of the dead um the body snatcher anyway check them out i think y'all will enjoy them very cool it's funny it's um off topic but i think jaws the we wrote an article about it um was saved by the fact that they could never get the mechanical shark to work I think it would have been a terrible movie had that mechanical shark worked, and they got they used it at the very very end. But before that, like you say, you just had to you had to everything was off camera. Like when the that opening scene when the 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 girl is swimming and she gets pulled under, <laughs> it's so scary. Yes, and that's a great point about suggesting rather than showing. Well, as you all know, I'm the child of older parents and. Um, my parents talked about the days when radio was the medium of entertainment, not television. And they said, and, and I've heard this from other people of that era, they said that you listen to a horror show on the radio, you're far more frightened okay. than you are when you see it. I mean, the, the radio horror shows scared everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but so again, it's the power of suggestion. What you create in your own mind is scarier than what they can produce on a screen. I, I can confirm that in the 1970s, um, there was a radio station in Little Rock that used to, on Saturday nights, run a, uh, it's called Beaker Theater, a, a, a radio drama. And they were, some of them were suspense and some of them were horror. Um, but I'd be driving home from a date and listening to this and they were very, that, it was very creepy. I it, it was also the seventies. I was a teenager, and uh, a radio station in New Orleans ran H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds around Halloween, um, which was done. I, when was that done? In the thirties? Late thirties. Late thirties. It's fantastic. It talk about something that holds up because it it really does fool you as kind of a breaking news event. I mean, Wells was a, he was a genius at radio. He was indeed. Well, one other un, somewhat unnoticed movie um, that also, it's not a Val Luton movie, but it's from the mid forties. It also suggests rather than explicitly shows the horror, it's a movie called The Uninvited. And I can recommend that one too. It's, oh, there's right. even a Criterion Collection edition of it. It stars Ray Moland, and um, it's excellent. And it's also there was also a song in it called "Stella by Starlight," which became something of a hit. So that's another good one to check out. Oh, this is great. We need to in the notes for this episode. We need to include all the movies that are mentioned because um, I've already got a list. Thanks to you, <laughs> Champagne. Well, I'll be happy to supply. <laughs> Interesting what you say about uh, you know the the budgets that they had Val Luton working on. Um, another notable in this field, um, Roger Corman had been working for um, American International Films and made a whole bunch of uh, low budget films uh, of dubious. Maybe <laughs> titles: uh, Wasp Women, uh, Attack of the uh, uh, of the Crab Monsters, Saga of the Viking <laughs> Women, and their voyage to the waters of the Great Serpent, and one that was fil fil um, um, 
backed financially by the drive-in theater operators of Louisiana, Swamp Women. <laughs> but eventually being tired of making uh, critter movies, <laughs> making movies on a $100,000 budget in a 10-day shooting cycle in black and white, um, he they approached him about doing a, uh, a version of The House of Usher. And he insisted that he was tired of these low budget films. So he went all the way up to a $200,000 budget for and 15 days to shoot <clears throat> in order to do the, the House of Usher. And uh, that was in 1960. And uh, it was so popular that he and Vincent Price I, mean, I, I went on to make, as many people know, uh, the whole host of these, uh, perhaps the best of which is The Mask of the Wet Death from 1964. Um, but uh, he, again, the, the, the horror films in general, these, many of these films are relatively low budget um, and yet bring in a lot of money. I, I was uh, ran across a uh, another item for the notes. I ran across a article in Mental Floss listing the twenty most profitable films. You know, return of investment uh, adjusted for inflation, and at least half of them are horror films. That there's a couple of you know there's a there's a couple of Disney films. There's a couple a uh, Jaws is one of them. Uh, Steve, a couple of Steven Spielberg films, um, and the the bookends of the Harry Potter uh, series. Um, but uh, uh, many of these, I mean, horror films re revived Universal, and uh, I think many of the filmmakers and, and uh, film companies were significantly coffered, boosted by these films. You know, those Roger Corman, Vincent Price ones were really entertaining. There was the Tomb of Ligeia. <laughs> well, no, it's a, really good stuff. It's it's a business, and you're right. They have to they have to return. Um, I just just thinking about the things that scare me. I do find that I'm much more of a um, occult fear of the occult. <laughs> Then I am of like, like I like being thrilled with Jaws and American Werewolf in London, but I think the scariest movie I ever saw at the time was The Shining. And I remember we could not tease you about that. No, I was really spooked. I'm not, yeah, you, you know, you remember. I was really spooked by that movie, and then. What broke the spell of it for me, which was very good, is they made a miniseries 20, almost, I guess, 20 years later, uh, because Stephen King was so infuriated at the liberties that Stanley Kubrick took to, with his source material. And he, he lauded this miniseries, and I watched it, and there wasn't a single scary thing about it. It was... Awful. It was there was an obsession with a boiler room, and there was nothing scary. And Tony, the little creepy unseen character in the movie, the finger, is replaced by a kid on wires floating around. <laughs> it was so. I thought, oh, okay, this isn't that scary. I can I can survive this. So, <laughs> what about you, troublemaker? Well, I'll bet that. Uh the number one movie on uh, 
Dr. Johnny Fever's list of return on investments was probably the Blair Witch Project, Ooh. which is the most scared I've been as an adult. I could never but, see that movie. There, there were, uh, there were. I, I, I don't. I, I thought that would be there too. Um, it wasn't. But uh, there were, there were, there were two other found video, quote unquote, found video uh, movies that were on there, and I'm afraid I don't remember the names right now. Uh, well, now Blair Witch is on the 25. It's not number one. Okay, it's in, it's in the 20. Yeah, I think it, at one time it was number one on that sort yeah. of list. But talk talk about it. Like, I, I couldn't see it. I thought it would be too scary. It's scary. <laughs> and it's so well done because it's, uh, uh, there's some kind of unique characters that I've never seen <clears throat> in any other movies. But they're still sort of stereotypical, almost slacker-like people, and um, uh, they the personalities play out in a, a inventive way. Uh, I don't think we'd really seen those kind of characters before. At least I hadn't in the cinemas, but uh, we sort of knew those kind of people from. Uh, college and being around at that time um, and uh, I that was the first found uh, movie type that I had ever seen so that plot device was very effective for me and uh, and it genuinely scared me it brought me back to when I was a child when I could get scared at any movie and uh, I've often wondered psychologically why it's so delicious to be scared. I don't know. Is it because that uh, we know that uh, that this will pass, and that as soon as we get out in the daylight, that everything will be okay, and it's we enjoy that sense of relief, or is it the adrenaline rush of being scared, or what are you all's thoughts? Well, our, our central nervous systems are. For survival, wired to respond to danger, yeah. uh, perceive danger, um, and so maybe it's in some ways enjoyable to tune them up. I <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know. I know what scares me, and it's stuff like The Exorcist and The Omen. I still remember The Omen, and I wonder if it's held up because I remember being so creeped out by that movie. And then I bought the book that it's based on. And I read the introduction by the author and it had so many factual mistakes about the time it was written. I thought, if you can't be bothered to get that right, I mean, I know it's a work of fiction, but I just, I don't know, something weirded me out about the author. So I hope the author's not listening to the podcast, but if he is, <laughs> You should go back and have an editor look at that in, in 10, 15 pages. It's a mess. But the movie with the Gregory Peck, I thought was so scary. And The Exorcist, I couldn't see for years. I finally did see it. That's also very scary. So anything spiritual or occult for me. Well, in that light, um, I read as a kid, I found this, uh, my, my mother used to um, subscribe to the Reader's Digest anthologies. And I found this book called Amy Come Home, which is about possession. 
and yeah. it is scary, scary. And oddly, um, and it's funny that I remember this because I was very young. Um, it's an ABC movie of the week. Remember those? Yes. Uh, was made of this book, and it was a different title. The title was The House That Would Not Die, and it starred Barbara Stanwyck. Really? And um, it, it was, well, I mean, the, I like the book better, but the, the movie was well done. But it is, it's really, it, there's a sense of evil that permeates it. And I think maybe that's, I think maybe the, if the evil is too strong in a movie, I think that's where it, you cease to enjoy it. I think that's what you felt with The Omen. It's what I felt with Rosemary's Baby when I eventually saw that. Ooh. There was just something too evil about yeah. it that, that, that blocked out the enjoyment. I, you know what's funny about that is I read the Rosemary's Baby, another one that holds up, is I read that book and I, I went on to read, like you're talking about, a lot of Ira Levin's books. Um, it's, the book is fantastic. I, and you know, you know what really, the, the reason that the occult and the spiritual stuff I think scares me just personally, you ask why, is because it's real. Yeah. I think it's real. And, uh, you know, that's really a force in the universe that we're contending with. And that's why I get really scared. Rosemary's Baby is a genuinely scary book and a almost perfect movie. I, I thought it was fantastic. Well, I don't know if it's appropriate to bring up in this podcast, but obviously I'm going to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> your comment about that it's real, um, I did have an experience of that reality it was it was very mild really my mother and i were visiting some friends in in southwest louisiana and we toured one of the plantation homes and um as we toured it i just before they started talking about the history of the house i just got this sense this overwhelming sense that this is an extremely unhappy house that it's always been unhappy and it continues to that day to be unhappy and later they told the story, um, there is a, a room in the house such that if anyone sleeps in it, a guest or anyone else, they don't wake up in it. Oh my gosh. And actually it was, there was an incident that inspired, and remember in Gone with the Wind where Scarlet shoots the Yankee that comes, yeah. apparently that, an incident like that really happened at this particular um plantation house and that's where that's where that part of the story was was put in but i've i've never been so happy to leave a place in my life as i was leaving that, that you know I, I agree with you and you know if there's one grisly frame in gone with the wind it's that it's because she shoots him right in the face and it's like only a frame or two and it's the grisliest shot in that you know that wonderful right. technicolor extravaganza now knowing that that was based on a true incident is, is, <clears throat> makes it worse. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I've read so much about Margaret Mitchell, and I do believe the reason that she, you know, she was an isolated, very lonely woman, and she died obviously tragically in that automobile hit her, but the drunk driver hit her, but. <laughs> She was lonely and isolated, and she never wrote again because she did take the diaries. She took the diaries of the grandmother, and that story that she is is largely kind of an arc of one of her relatives. And she was so freaked out because she it was kind of not stolen valor, but she had taken something that wasn't hers, and I think she never recovered, which is sad because 
only she could have told the story. Like, you know, every member of her family could have taken those diaries and written a, a sprawling novel out of it. They would have all been different, right? So I always thought that was really tragic. Oh, I agree. That, that was unwarranted self-berating on her part. I yeah, think. yeah, it was, it's, it was sad. But I, the, the feeling of the, your point about going overboard, um, but the, uh, the going overboard kind of ruins it if you're if it's too much if it's too over the top. I think that's kind of the curse of a lot of movies now. You know, a lot of more recent attempts is it's so they can do anything like you say, and it's so over the top that it just kind of dissipates any effect. It's like those um, superhero movies. You know, I mean, I know it's that's all of Hollywood now, but I, it's like you can't even watch them because you, it's like, a, it's like, um, it's like the cover versions of the same pop song <laughs> over and over and over again. It's all the same beat. It's all the same notes. The hero always dies two or three times, always comes back stronger. It's like, whew. and I think that's infected all of entertain, entertainment. So there's a lot of opportunity for maybe there's a new Roger Corman or a new low budget because it doesn't take money, it takes ideas. That's so true. It, it starts with, what, with what's on the paper and proceeds from there. Absolutely. Um, and when money substitutes for ideas, it just doesn't work. It kills it. And look what they've, you know, look at, they've killed so many things in Hollywood. They've, they've killed Star Wars. They've killed, you know, they just, it's like these big corporations take great properties you know, and 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 it's it's like a spider. They just inject venom and it dies. <laughs> They're feeding on the corpse. That's not exactly horror, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, artistic horror. <laughs> it's too bad. Well, to return to the the classics, uh, the either which of you uh, of the classic, say Universal horror movies which are your favorites dracula dracula okay yeah i have to admit i'm not a connoisseur i've seen i've seen them but i'm not i don't have any expertise well, or I, I vivid memory dracula does exhibit one of the themes that you all have already talked about and that is uh it's a that whole idea that whole genre is about seduction and um you know uh, uh um the hollywood code lugosi uh had been had played matinee idol dashing characters in his in his native country and he came to america expecting to do that and the language barrier made it difficult for him to be cast in many of these roles so he found dracula and that became um that became his life and Alas, say to contrast him with Boris Karloff, uh, Karloff had a little bit more of a range. And when people got tired of the Dracula films, alas, Lugosi fell into depression and, and perhaps even despair. Um, so I think that's probably the most artistic of all of them. Although I have to admit my favorite is The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, the uh, I just think you know the the weird um, set design um, and uh, yeah the uh, 
uh, you know, Colin Clive is, is okay. I think, you know, Karloff and uh, Ernest Sezgin as Dr. Pretorius, you know, run away with the movie. Well, what about Elsa Lanchester? Well, <laughs> she's by herself. Right. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I thought that was so cute that they put in the credits, the bride, question mark. <laughs> like, like everybody hadn't figured out who played her. Well, I mean, she, in the intro, they have her playing uh, Mary Shelley, who's yeah. introduced. That's I thought was a very clever way to do it. So, I, uh, my the vampire. I I'm not a connoisseur of the which of the 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 Universal Pictures that you're talking about, but I did love the interview with the vampire, which surprised me because I thought that wasn't my cup of tea. I thought that what made me think about it, Doctor Fever, is the seduction. You know, is kind yeah. of the the seductive element of it, and I still remember when um, Tom Cruise was cast, and Anne Rice had a public meltdown, and said that was the dumbest thing. <laughs> and then she oh, ended really? up loving. Yeah, she did not yeah, think she, he was appropriate. Yeah, and it turned out he. I thought he was. I thought he was good. I think they could have done better, but I thought he was very good. Um, the one who can't act in that movie is Brad Pitt. I don't think he really pulls that off, but it's a terrific movie. Well, Lestat is a wonderful character because he's he's part um, of you know manipulative sob. <laughs> yes, uh, and and Lewis's character is just the long suffering. I'm, I'm I'm apologizing for my existence, and that's that's I think hard to do well. Um, so I do agree with your assessment of this role. Yeah, uh, uh, he's done better in other in other places, but this is not exactly an easy, his role is not one that's easy to uh, to shine in. No, it's a, and it's a terrific, I ended up reading the book afterwards. It's, it's a terrific book. And I yeah. I tried to read the sequel, which I heard was very good. And uh, I got about three quarters of the way through it. And I just said, I rarely put a book down. I usually try to soldier through, but it was impossible. <laughs> it's unreadable. Wow, three quarters of the way through, and you quit. I just finally, because wow. the from about halfway through, you're in this tomb with these statues that move very slowly, and that goes on and on and on and on, and I guess I give up. <laughs> so I never made it. So I don't know how it ends. <laughs> yeah. I did like the portrayal of of old New Orleans. Um, that, that I think they did. A good oh, job of, beautiful. of evoking yes. that in in the and 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 in the in the sequel movie, the old Paris did a good job of evoking that. Putting um, dirt dirt on the streets of the French Quarter just transformed it. It's like you went back two hundred years. It was amazing the way they did the movie. They also did it. San Francisco looked beautiful in the in the yeah. opening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I read in an interview that the little girl was based on Anne Rice's yeah. own child who died of leukemia at something like age five. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I just, it, that really got in the way of my enjoying the movie. Because I thought that somebody's in despair and just, just set me off. Well, so there's a lot of, um, there was a lot of talk at the time, right? And I, I, I don't know enough about Anne Rice. Though I have met her once, um, 
there was a lot of talk at the time that, you know, she was in, that's one of the reasons they left San Francisco, right? They lost the child. And the, uh, this is going to sound very creepy, but the bloodborne illness and the obsession with blood, obviously, in the, in the movies. Um, and it, it makes sense. I don't know if it's true, but it certainly makes sense psychologically. And the little girl, I've read, I've read the same thing. Um, and she is very well portrayed in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... So I can admire Interview with the Vampire, but I can't say I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. I Well, I mean, there is a incredibly tragic scene. It's... I guess... Yeah, I guess it puts it in the horror category, but it, when... Um, I can't even remember the setup, but uh, the little girl and there she's imprisoned in a pit or something in a shaft of sunlight. The sun rises in the sky and it incinerates them. Um, so it's really, really well done. Do you all find uh, books to be scarier than movies? Generally, yes, um, for me. Like, have you seen... Stepford Wives, you know, Ira Levin's book that got made into the 1970s movie. The book is creepy. It's, it's very, very short, and it's really creepy. I didn't find the movie very creepy. You know, I found it good. And I know it got remade with Nicole Kidman. I, I did not see the remake. Family Bill R, the book, scared me a lot. The movie did not do anything for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've never read The Shining. I've still never read The Shining. <laughs> at, at Champagne's encouragement, I read the short story on which Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds was based. And as scary as The Birds is, and I would argue maybe the scariest of his movies, um, the, book, the, the short story is even odder. It's even, it's even creepier. And it's very different. It's got an entirely different setting yeah, and everything else. Different setting, different. Who wrote uh, that oh, short uh, story? Uh, De Marnier, Rebecca? Daphne Du Maurier. Oh, really? Daphne Du Maurier. Okay. <clears throat> it's, an, it's, very, it's more of a novelette than a, a full-length novel. Uh, it packs a lot into the short space. That's funny, you know. I read I Am Legend, which is probably made into three movie, two movies at least, right? It's got made into Omega Man, and then I Am Legend, right, with Will Smith, which I did not see. But I read that. It's another vampire story, uh, and it's really good. It's also very short. It's twenty five thousand words. It's you know, it's a novella. Really, really well done. Richard Matheson. And I've gone on to read a lot of his stuff. Yeah, he's... I read The Shrinking Man, which is a genuinely scary book. Uh, and it's just about a man who's shrinking. It's so fascinating, the, the way he gets into the psychology. And, of course, you can do that in a book, right? You can get inside people's heads in a way you can't in, in, in the movies. Well, I, I'm going a little bit off topic, um, but there's one other movie I wanted to get in, um, a, a lesser-known gem, um, and it could lead to some more discussions about scary 
elements. And this movie is called Dead of Night. It was made in England in the mid 40s. It's actually um, an anthology movie. There's four or five separate stories that are held together by um, another story, a connective narrative. And some of those are some of the scariest things I've ever seen. And in particular, the last one got the most notoriety. It was, it featured a ventriloquist dummy. That had like its own. And I think that spawned that whole subgenre of horror, the ventriloquist dummy horror. And that's, I still think that one, the way, the way Dead of Night portrayed that was the most effective way that particular. Okay, I have to see that because that's another area that's the doll or the ventriloquist that is genuinely scary. Uh, man, remember the Anthony Hopkins movie, made a movie? Magic. Magic. Oh, my God. That's a scary movie. Um, and I still... And a couple of Twilight Zones. Yeah, a couple of Twilight Zones. I still think... I saw the first Chucky. I know Chucky's been made into 5,000 movies now, but I <laughs> the, the first one was very scary i thought i i never saw another one but i thought that was really well done what was it called the first chucky movie does anybody remember because <laughs> otherwise this won't be the definitive guide no, I can't say that. let me uh if i can talk, talk, talk amongst yourselves <laughs> well i want to uh I always love to talk soundtracks. I want to uh, say that I think that the soundtrack to Jaws added a lot oh. to the anxiety of the shark. And uh, that was a John Williams soundtrack, if I remember correctly. Yes, it was. And it that was. two note, uh -huh. doo -doo -doo -doo, that by itself uh, makes my heart race. It's just hearing that. It's funny because. Um... John Williams wrote such a great variety, right? Um, and when George Lucas made Star Wars, he said, I don't want a science fiction-y soundtrack. I want a big, romantic Hollywood soundtrack. And the one thing, he was so disappointed in that movie, right? Because he, he neurotically kept adjusting, 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 adjusting that movie. But he said the one thing that came out better than he could ever have imagined, which elevated the movie, I think, is the soundtrack is Williams' yes, score. Yes. Yeah, fantastic score. But I'd say, off topic, I guess, but I really dislike the job he did with those dinosaur flicks, Jurassic Park. Oh, John Williams? That, yeah. I think oh, I loved, really? So inappropriate. What do you mean? In what way? Uh, the He's got, a, I think, probably the most well-known theme uh, from any of those movies is when he's... It's a, a kind of a lofty, almost sweet theme that he shows with the dinosaurs running, and uh, it just, it just does nothing for me to advance the cause of the film. Oh, okay. I love that soundtrack. I so it's yeah. Uh, soundtracks, music is like wine, right? There's no wrong answer. Well, of course there is, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Elsewise, why this podcast? Right? <laughs> the movie, the 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 Chucky Chucky first appeared in a movie called Child's Play that in nineteen eighty eight. Okay, scary, scary movie. If you haven't seen it, 
I can't vouch for any of the sequel. I think there's one out now. I think they, it's like a TV series at this point. I think it's a TV series. Okay. Yeah. It's a miniseries. Okay. Uh, uh, uh. Well, I guess it costs so much to make a movie. There's a, the investment is less risky if you choose a, a property or a franchise that has proven itself to be successful, I guess. It's a shame. And speaking of which, you all talk about vampire movies. I never saw or read any of the Twilight series just because the whole thing turned me off. Um, so I, I don't know whether I, I would say I was in Colorado at the time and at the dog park, and a mom and I were chatting because we had two dogs. Our dogs were the same age, and she had kids. <laughs> and she said, "Be thankful you don't have a daughter, so you don't have to read those dreadful books." Twilight. <laughs> she was reading them because her daughter was young, where she wanted to make sure, and she said they were horrible. <laughs> so that's all. That's the only intelligence I have on the Twilight books. But she said, "Just be grateful you don't have a daughter." <laughs> well, I think. It, when were those written? The '90s or 2000s. I mean, they're relatively recent. It's kind yeah. of contemporary, post Harry Potter, I think. Yes, it, it it startled me a bit that the young romantic books that young people were reading were about someone who has to risk their life in order to express their sexuality. Well, that's interesting. Um, uh, and you know, maybe does that did that parallel what was happening in society at the time? You know, the things have evolved to where. Love is a very risky thing to engage in because um, uh, you know we weren't fully into prep and being able to protect from HIV. Well, that, disease yeah. notwithstanding, I, you know, sexuality is dangerous. I mean, I think it always has been, but now the danger is oh, it's it's more overt. Yeah, let's put it that way, and it, it, it's taken a definite physical turn. Although, if you think about it, um, up until maybe a hundred years ago, otherwise healthy young women died massively in childbirth, oh, making yeah. sex very risky. Right, right. Well, and there, you know, there were, there were STDs and, and before antibiotics and things like that, people would die of syphilis and, you know, HIV obviously is relatively recent, but there have been other things. Yeah. Well, that was cheery. Let's <laughs> <laughs> talk about something a little bit. Well, we're talking about scary movies. Uh, we're, not, we're not talking uh, musicals here. <laughs> but that could be another topic for another podcast. Oh, that'll be a good one. Some, some, um, some of the people who wa like to watch people who watch this genre uh, take this genre, take the people who really get into this genre rather lightly. And I think they have given rise to the add to the the horror show host, who is an introducer and a little bit winker in chief as the logo. Are we taking this seriously? Um, the, although the ones who have made it biggest are uh, Sandra Peterson as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And, <laughs> Rich Cause as Sven Gulli and Cause has been around since the 70s. Wow. Although he 
yeah, that, but he was on local, he was on mostly on local TV and off the air for a while, back on the air for a while, until in 2011, he uh, hooked up with MeTV, but um, uh, uh, Elvira um, was the first to make it nationally, uh, but you know, that partly because cable TV made that made that possible you know, to have a national audience. Um, but as many of these as I have seen, I had been very fortunate to have grown up under the tutelage of the best of them all, Momus Alexander Morris. <laughs> <laughs> Known to our listeners only if you're from New Orleans or perhaps Detroit. <laughs> uh, and the, the, the show began on WWL in 1959. Uh, uh, Sidney Redu was a disc jockey, uh, and I, I, as was Rich Cause. Uh, so I think this, you know, wacky keep keep things light kind of uh, approach that that the DJs in that era had uh, lends itself to this approach to these movies. Um, he was approached by WWL, who had bought a packet of then inexpensive Universal Pictures to show um, to, to run on TV. And they wanted a introductory show, uh, a, a wraparound um, show idea. Um, and I'm not an expert in this field, but I think this is one of the first shows to, to be produced like this. Um, and no, Sid said he would do this if he could make it funny, if he, um, which he incredibly did. Uh, he took on the persona of a I suppose you would say mad scientist. I, I would prefer to think a scientist whose ideas were ahead of his time. <laughs> um, and the, uh, the, the wraparound story around the movie uh, started off as having commentary about the content of the movie, but it eventually evolved beyond the, uh, evolved around separate stories in the development of the characters <laughs> in, his, in his world. Uh, he, um, his, his, he had a Garrett laboratory uh, overlooking, well, the, the ladder that left out, went out the side uh, of his uh, side window so that he could avoid going down the stairway and uh, avoid his landlady because he could often not pay his rent, uh, led down into Pirate's Alley in New Orleans. So we know where, we know where that is. That's, that's a relatively conscribed area. So. The archaeologists have not yet unearthed his lab, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know he, he would always be on the forefront of solving the problems of, of mankind with science, and he was going to cure all this within the thirty-five minutes he had. <laughs> he was going to demonstrate all this within the thirty-five minutes that he had of, of, among the movie, which the station had so thorough had so kindly provided to draw audience for his <laughs> real important work. Um, and inevitably, something would go terribly, terribly wrong with this, usually backfiring on the good doctor himself. Um, and just it was idea after idea after idea. The, the, the ratings after the after amazingly to me, uh, after a couple of years, the ratings fell off a little bit. Many of us 
are, are proud to have attended the Momus Alexander Morgan Institute. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring it home with what is the scariest one, two, the scariest one, two, or three movies you've ever seen? Blair Witch Project. Troublemaker, and, Blair Witch. And then uh, Dracula. Which, which Dracula? Uh, Boris Karloff. Okay. 1930s. You mean, um, Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi. Lugosi. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you, Champagne. That was embarrassing. Bella would not be happy with that. <laughs> you might live forever with the <laughs> vampire's <laughs> kiss. I mean, I already said mine. Mine is hands down The Shining. Scariest movie I've ever seen. Oh, the, um, this this answer has changed. I've I've recently watched the original Cat People, and I think both of those I think both of those movies, both versions of that, are pretty darn scary. So I I maybe make it a, a two place tie. This Cat People the remake may be one of the only two or three movies that the the remake is perhaps even as good or perhaps even better. Um, than the original, with Tom's Crown Affair being a, a, another one, but I think I think both Cat People movies. Well, for me, I think the scariest one, and this is going to be really off the wall. Um, there was a TV series called Dark Shadows, and after it went off the air, a feature-length movie was actually two were made. Um, the first one was. I would put the scariest movie I've ever seen. I really? Think was, I, think, uh, I think it was called House of Dark Shadows. I mean, there are two movies that have very similar titles, and I, and I should have prepared better and looked that one up. But um, it, was, it was successful, and then they did a second movie, but they had characters with similar names, but it was a different plot, and it was not good. So, um, But it, I grew up watching Barnabas Collins, and he scared the you-know-what out of me. <laughs> so I, I think that... And, that one and Rosemary's Baby, if for pure terror, would be my top two. I want to see the ones I haven't seen, and I agree. I agree with you about Rosemary's Baby. Really, genius filmmaking with the the underlying dread. The same as The Shining, right? It's the underlying dread of knowing that there's something under the surface. You know, the Jack Nicholson character that's haunted through time, and then Rosemary's Baby where the whole world is conspiring to tell her, this isn't really happening. It's all in your head, and it's all real. It's, it's sheer terror, champagne, best way to put it.